Professor uh, Ted Merwin is Associate Professor of Religion and, and Judaic Studies at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, where he's founding director of the Milton B. Asbel Center for Jewish Life. He writes about Jewish theater, dance, and food for the New York Jewish Week, and other major newspapers and magazines. This is, what book numbers is your first book, second, second book? Uh, maybe he'll talk about what his first book was about, I don't know. But you can look him up online, you can read his articles, and for now, please um, munch silently and enjoy our CSP lunch program, Pastrami on Rye, and Overstuff History of the Jewish Deli. Don't forget, books will be for sale after the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ari. Ari and I actually haven't met before, but we have so many friends in common that I feel like I've known him for, for quite a while. And Ari, thank you so much for inviting me here. I'm so excited to be here. I love LA. I have family in uh, Burbank uh, who work in Hollywood, which is maybe how I got into the whole field of studying popular culture and popular entertainment, which I'll be talking about a lot today because my book is not just about the history of the deli itself, but it's about the history of the representation of the deli in film and television and music and stand-up comedy and all that good stuff. <laughs> so uh, I want to start by just saying that I grew up in uh, Great Neck, Long Island. Anybody know? Uh, okay, okay. We have some New Yorkers here? Anybody from Long Island? Or Long Island, as we say? Okay, that counts for something. Uh, anybody from the Bronx? Brooklyn? Staten Island? <laughs> Manhattan. Anybody from Manhattan? Okay. So I grew up in Great Neck. My grandparents lived just across the New York City border in Flushing, Queens. Queens. We got it in Queens. Okay, good. You lived in Flushing. Perfect. Okay. So my grandparents were typical second generation New York Jews, meaning that they weren't immigrants. They were the children of immigrants. And they had a very secular type of Jewish identity. So they didn't go to synagogue, really, except maybe on the high holidays. But they only ate typical Eastern European Jewish food. I don't think I ever saw them eat a slice of pizza or an egg roll in their entire lives. <laughs> so whenever they came to visit, which was very frequently because we lived very close by, they would, uh, we would need to get food for them. So there was a deli around the corner on Middle Neck Road, which is the main drag of Great Neck, yeah, called Squires. So I would be the one who would be sent around the corner on Sunday night to pick up the same order, which was a pound of turkey and a pound of roast beef and a can of the, the Heinz vegetarian baked beans <laughs> and a dozen slices of the seeded rye bread, the caraway seeds, and a little round squat container of gravy. And the counterman would, it was like a wax paper bag, you know, he would write the amounts with a grease pencil on the outside, he would total it up. And I would pay for it, and I would come back around the corner. And my parents, who still live in Great Neck, in the same house, had a little kitchen table, round kitchen table. And I would put the food down on the table, and I swear, within five minutes, there was not a speck, there was not a crumb, there was not a morsel of food that was left on that table. It was like the biblical plague. If you remember Passover, there's the plague of the locusts, and they come in and they devour everything in sight. And it was this amazing connection to our, to our, to our Judaism, which I really didn't have in any other way, because my parents didn't belong to a synagogue. 
we didn't, uh, my sister and I didn't have our bat mitzvahs, didn't go to Hebrew school. I actually did have a bar mitzvah later when I was in college and I got involved in Hillel. But I grew up with almost no knowledge of what it meant to be Jewish other than the food. And so this was a very, very important connection for me to my heritage. And I was telling this story and somebody said, you know, that's so ironic. And I said, ironic? What's ironic about it? It's my, it's my life. You know? <laughs> Don't you love it when people tell you that your own life is sort of paradoxical or strange in some way? Um, and they said, no. So what were the kinds of foods that I said? Does anyone remember? See how closely you're paying attention. What were the turkey and roast beef? They said turkey and roast beef were not the kind of foods that Jews, they're not Jewish foods, exactly. Thank you, right? There were three types of meat that Jews ordered when they went to a deli, which were? And tongue, that's right. I was in a kosher deli, it was just the other day When an old man called the waiter and I overheard him say I'm looking at the menu and the specials on the wall And I can't find a thing to eat cause there's no tongue at all You've got turkey and pastrami, you've got vodkas and salami You've got pickled peppers packed in jars and crocks You've got Krivenis and Knishes and Azean kinds of fishes. I see whitefish, sable, cisco, carp, and lox. You've got portion eggs and crackers pressed by all the Alta cockers. You've got kishka, also fricassee and glow. You got gefilte fish and crane. You got self-self juice hands plain. So how come you don't have tongue? That's Shelley Posen. He's a wonderful Canadian folk singer. I'll play another song by him later. But just as a way of saying that things have changed a lot, <laughs> right? And that's what I'm going to be talking about in my talk today, the rise and fall of the Jewish deli in New York. And this was actually not such an easy topic to research. It took me a long time to write this book because no one had ever really looked into it before. Nobody knew how many delis there were in New York or who opened the first deli or where delis came from. And when I started to investigate this, I started with a particular assumption that I realized after I started doing the research was incorrect. And that was that the heyday of the Jewish deli was during the immigrant period when Jews came from Eastern Europe and most of them, the majority of them settled in New York on the Lower East Side. And I figured they wanted this connection to their homeland and to their childhood and to what they had left behind. But I found very little evidence that the, that delis were a big part of the culture of the immigrants in New York during that period, which I guess I should have known from the beginning because, well, I mean, why do you think? Why do you think delis actually weren't such a big feature of immigrant Jewish life? Yes? Because mama was making it at home. Yes, that's right. So the idea that the immigrant Jewish mother would be going out to a takeout store or a restaurant to bring home food for the family Right? It sort of vitiated her role as the person who was making the food for her husband and her children. Bless you. And beyond that, why else do you think maybe Jews weren't particularly connected to these kinds of foods during the time that we might think that they, you know, they would have been? 
They couldn't afford it. Very good, right? It was, they couldn't afford it. They were working in sweatshops, right? They weren't in a position to be able to spend money on takeout food, right? And I remember actually my grandmother, who I said was not an immigrant, but she told me that when she was growing up, they ate out very infrequently. It wasn't really so much a part of their lives in the way that nowadays, you know, what's the statistic? That Americans eat, um, you know, a huge percentage of, their, of, of our meals, we actually eat out. But it wasn't true in that period. So, so my grandparents were born in the teens, um, but the decade that's the most associated with the second generation is the 1920s, which is what I wrote my first book about. My first book was about the depiction of New York Jewish life, of second generation New York Jewish life in the vaudeville routines and plays and films uh, of the jazz age, right? And uh, so that was the period when the second generation really came to the fore. And I'll be talking about that a little bit more in a moment. But just to go back a little bit uh, historically, so where does delicatessen come from? Where does this whole notion, yes? According to Seth Cron, the delicatessen comes from the push cart. The push cart, the push okay. Cart where in New York, and the cops in our 1906 started to push them around. Okay. Yes, that is true. If you have a license, you might as well have a, that is a store. True. That is true. That is true. Yes. They were um, corning beef in Russia. Well, they've been, I mean, right. So, I mean, corned beef, you know, and the whole idea of, of, of brining meat and fish in order to preserve it, right, is something that goes back thousands of years. Yes. Yes. So this is something that has a very, very long history. That's right. But where does the word delicatessen come from? Okay. Okay. Can you translate? Yeah. It means a, a pleasurable uh, taste. Dish. Right. Okay. Right. So, um, but where does the word come from, delicatessen? German. What word? What word in German? Essen, right? No, actually, it, that's what a lot of people say, but it doesn't actually come from the word Essen. It comes from the word delicatus in Latin, and the word delicatus means anything, not just food, anything or anybody who was special, who was beautiful, who was attractive, who was enticing, who was voluptuous, right? There's a whole sort of range of erotic meanings that connect to the delicatessen, which is no accident that in American popular culture, and I'll play later on, the scene from When Harry Met Sally. Um, uh, you know, so the puer delicatus, for example, the delicious boy in Roman, in Roman culture. So it took time for this word to be associated with food, and that's how we get the concept of the delicacy, right? Something that has a privileged place within a particular culture. And we know that in Europe, and even to this day, if you go, if you travel in France, what's the kind of food store in France where you can buy very fancy, cuts of pickled and smoked beef and pork and so on. Anybody remember? The charcuterie, right? And in Italy, anyone traveled in Italy? The salumerie, right? But as somebody said, oh, to speak about Paris for one second. So in France, when the French Revolution happened <laughs> and the former purveyors to the aristocracy, the people who made all the furniture and the tapestries and everything that adorned the uh, royal apartments, were suddenly unemployed. There are historians who say there were entire streets in Paris that were filled with nothing but food shops and restaurants. Now, why should that be so? Why should the rising bourgeoisie in Paris in the late 18th century want to be eating these fancy imported foods from all over the world? What did it signal to them and to each other 
about their rising class position. That they were wealthy. That they were coming into their own economically and socially, right? Because how do we show that we are you know, moving up in the world through the clothes that we wear, right? Through the cars that we drive, although in those days, I guess they were, what were they driving? Carriages, horses and carriages, something. Um, the, 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 the houses that we live in, right? And, and the food that we eat, right? I mean, this was like the kind of the caviar, right? Delhi food was like the caviar of, you know, of Eastern European Jewish culture. And how did Jews, how did Jews adopt this kind of food? Well, Germany was another place where, where, which was particularly known for these kinds of smoked and pickled meats. Jews moved through the Rhine River Valley on their way to Poland, right, throughout the Middle Ages. Is this working? Did it suddenly go out? No, it's working. Um, thank you. And uh, so these foods were something that were very much part of German culture. And actually, when I was a, when I was a boy growing up on Long Island, I used to take the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan during Christmas time to see the department store windows. Do they have that here where they, they decorate the department for Christmas? They don't do that. I used to love to see the displays in the Christmas windows. This was something in Germany that the delicatessens were famous for, that they would have incredibly you know, ornate, elegant uh, window decorations with all the foods that came from all the different countries. The Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg once compared the window of a delicatessen store to a symphony of symmetry and light and color and so on. And do you know what the central feature of the window display was? Any guesses? The head of a particular animal? A wild boar. boar. Right, exactly. That's where you get boar's head, right? That's where you get the name from. Versht, yeah, versht means sausage in Yiddish, right? So when Jews came to New York, that's right, they opened what were called Verschtgeschäften, sausage stores, where they created a kosher variant of the kinds of foods that they knew from Eastern Europe. Except that, as I said, there weren't very many of these stores. There was a survey done in 1899 of the 10th Ward of the Lower East Side. Has, has anyone been to Lower East Side yet? Okay. So you, so you know Orchard Street, Essex Street, Hester Street. I'm sure all these places where you're going to go when you go on your trip, right? And the 10th Ward of the Lower East Side was probably the most crowded place on the face of the earth in the, at the end of the 19th century. It was more crowded than like Calcutta or Bombay or places like that, right? There were, and it was mostly Jewish. <laughs> I mean, there were all these Jews living on top of each other, right? And there were 10 Vershgeschäften and 10 delicatessens in that area at that time, right? So this was clearly not a really important part of of their, of their culture. It became uh, an essential, I would argue, part of Jewish culture only later. And that's what I was looking for. When was the heyday of this food that I knew from doing interviews and talking to people had been a mainstay of their childhood? I mean, I, there was a deli owner in Boston who said that this food is, she whispered it, she's like, this food is so important to people that they come here on respirator. <laughs> they come here for the last taste of pastrami before they die. You know? I mean, it reminds me of, uh, there's a wonderful book. Uh, do you know Jonathan Rosen? He's a journalist. He wrote a book called The Talmud and the Internet. He has a great passage in The Talmud and the Internet in which he says, the great German poet Goethe on his deathbed wished for more light. He said, my grandmother wished for pastrami. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing, right? Oh, Soupy Sales. Remember Soupy Sales? Soupy Sales had this great line where he said, if I had my life to live over, I'd live over a deli. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew this was something that was 
such an important part of, of people's lives, you know? But when did it happen? And, uh, and when did it become not just an important part of Jewish people's lives, but when did the deli, particularly in New York, become an essential aspect of the city itself, become iconic of the city itself? So if you look at this image behind me, right? It's the real thing. What's the real thing? Coke is the real thing. But what else is the real thing? The, it's actually corned beef, but okay. Uh, and what else is the real thing? The mustard. And what else? The real, when you're thinking about symbols of New York, right? What's the symbol? The cab, the, cab, the cab driver in the yellow taxi, right? Leaning out the window with his sandwich and his drink, right? So this is how the deli sandwich, right? We talk about New York as the Big Apple. But people don't really think about going to New York and eating Big Apples, right? They eat a pastrami on rye. You know, what's interesting is that these are both, to get back to this whole sort of erotic symbolism, these are both sexual symbols. The, the, the apple, right? And I, mean, I don't have to go into that. And the, and the, and the overstuffed, in Yiddish it's ungestuft, pastrami sandwich, right? So, you see the, the stage deli actually closed a couple years ago, unfortunately, right? But right in the center of things, right? Right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of Times Square and the whole, and the whole world of entertainment, which I'll talk about more in a minute. Am I even able to project When New York, when New York uh, you know, wanted to be chosen as the host city for the 2012 Summer Olympics. They, they ran this ad to try to, to, try to uh, get chosen. Um, and nowadays, you know, I mean, this whole idea of the overstuffed is something that's entered American culture. So that even the subway in Quiznos, right? They, 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 I know. And they just, um, subway just ran this campaign. I think it ends, I think it ends this week um, for the corned beef Reuben where they've been doing this whole promotional thing all over the, all over the country. OK, so I'm going to move on. This is um, Lower Marion, right near where Lee uh, Sussman lives. Um, so the food comes from Germany, as I said. What it reminds me of, these delicatessen stores remind me of, if, if anyone's been to Harrods Food Hall in London, the department store, the, the downstairs food hall, right? It's that kind of thing. Or in New York, I guess, maybe Zabar's. Do people know Zabar's in New York? Okay. Okay. So uh, now what happens is, after the turn of the 20th century, the delicatessen store, which had been exclusively a takeout operation, begins to morph into a restaurant. And so in Philadelphia, as you see, it's a kosher meat store, right? Takeout meat store. But then you see underneath where it says lunchroom, also fine lunchroom. Right? This is the beginning. This is from the teens. This is from the beginning of when the delicatessen become, begins to become a restaurant and not just a takeout, uh, a takeout establishment. So after World War I, Jews are moving out of the Lower East Side. They're moving to the Bronx and to Brooklyn. They're moving to Upper Manhattan, to Harlem, which is actually a very Jewish neighborhood at the same time as the Harlem Renaissance is, is going on. And they're beginning to move more out into the mainstream of American society. One of the most popular entertainers of the day is named Aaron Lebedev. And he has a song called Romania, Romania, which becomes probably the most beloved of all Yiddish, Yiddish folk songs. I'm going to just play a little bit from the beginning. 
Nero 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 So David, I said I was going to ask calling you to, to translate. So what is he saying? He's saying that it's, uh, Romania, Romania used to be a, a country that was very pleasant to live in because one of the reasons is uh, is the, the, the food, amamaligale, which is cornmeal mash. Yes, and polenta, I guess we would say. And, uh, and uh, pastramele. Pastramele and akarnatskele, which is a girl with a stuck-up nose. Karnatskele is also a sausage. But okay. Okay, and a glaze of levine. But not only that, thank you very much, but not only that, right, each one of the words ends with this same ending, the le, right? Yeah. A mamaliga le. And a pastrami le, and a carnazza le, and a glaze le vine. And what is the le in Yiddish? Little, diminutive, right? So that only, these were foods that were delicacies. They were eaten only in small quantities, only on special occasions, right? So this is the nostalgia for the old country that's already starting at a time when Jews are, as I said, already moving away in some sense from their immigrant origins, but there's still that tug uh, from the past. So this is when I realized was when the delicatessen really came into its own, when Jews were starting to come into their own, in the same way as in Paris, after the French Revolution, right? We said that people flattered themselves on their consumption of particular kinds of food that represented affluence, that represented social mobility, right? And in New York, the same type of thing was happening. Jews wanted to eat the kind of foods that made them feel like they were becoming American, okay? So what were the famous delis of the time period? 1920s, what were, what were a couple of famous delis during this period? Anyone have an idea? Katz's. Katz's was already from 1888, but Carnegie is 1935. Russ and Daughters is appetizing, so that's not even really a deli. Second Avenue is later, in the 40s, early 50s. Ratner's is not a delicatessen, it's a, it's a, it's a dairy restaurant. So Harpo Marx, I won't make you guess anymore. Harpo Marx um, actually did possess a speaking voice, <laughs> and he wrote a wonderful autobiography called Harpo Speaks. And in Harpo Speaks, he says that he and his brothers grew up in East Harlem, and then they became famous, they traveled all over the country. And he said, when we came back to New York, it was such a thrill, because he said, I had two homes away from home, Lindy's and Rubens. These were places where I found my people speaking my language with my accent, right? These were delis that were not kosher, right? They were flagrantly non-kosher, why? Because you couldn't possibly eat in them without having a, a, a cheesecake at the end of your meal, right? And yet, in some ways, I mean, a lot of people, when, I, when they found out that I was writing a book about delis, they said, oh, so you're just writing about kosher delis, right? And I said, well, I am writing about kosher delis, but I can't just write about kosher delis because some of the most famous, important delis in New York were not kosher, you know, starting with Katz's. Well, Katz's, it's not clear. They probably started out as kosher and then, and then lost it along the way. But certainly, the delis that opened in the theater district 
in the 1920s, right, were not kosher, but they were intensely Jewish, and they were very much tied to the entertainment culture, right? These were places where Jews would go to try to catch a glimpse of one of their favorite stars, right? And the sandwiches themselves, right? This practice, Arnold Rubin developed this practice of naming sandwiches after the stars of the day, right? And I don't get that. I mean, why does someone want to eat the Al Jolson or eat the Fanny Bryce or the Eddie Cantor, right? I don't get it. But it's interesting, you know? It's interesting that Jews wanted to be in this place that was imbued with the glitz and the glamour of celebrity, right? Because they wanted some of that stardust to rub off on themselves. It was almost as if they were soaking up this showbiz atmosphere like barrels of brisket on their way to becoming corned beef and pastrami. <laughs> and not only that, right, but the food was intensely symbolic because meat was something that was not a big part of Eastern European Jewish culture, right? As we said, Jews were poor, right? They came to the United States. They maybe had a little bit more access to all different kinds of food. I mean, there's a wonderful book by Hasia Diner, who was one of my mentors, called Hungering for America, in which she talks about how immigrants came to the United States so they could eat better, right? But still, meat held a lot of symbolism for Jews. And so eating this huge sandwich, right, was showing off, publicly showing off how much you could afford and how much you could eat was really a way of showing that you had achieved the American dream, the symbol for the American dream. And not only that, but who was serving it, right? Talk about the entertainment atmosphere. I write in my book about the Jewish waiter, right? The stereotypical Jewish waiter. Does anyone remember going to a deli and being served by a Jewish waiter who was so obnoxious and so condescending that he acted like, right, they acted like you were there for his sake rather than the other way around, you know, so that he could lord it over you? I mean, I thought a lot about that. What is going on there? You know, what is it about the waiter? Many of these waiters were former actors and, and comedians <laughs> from the Yiddish theater, from vaudeville, from Broadway, and so on, right? So maybe that's part of it. They were still doing this kind of shtick. But also, I think there was a lot of resentment as Jews were getting more acculturated and getting more successful. There was a lot of resentment that the waiter probably felt stuck in this very low-class, demeaning occupation. And it really came home to me when I was eating in the Second Avenue Deli. Anyone here been to the Second Avenue Deli? There was a waitress there named Diane Kastner. She was there for many years. It was impossible to miss her. She wore huge wigs and tons of makeup and tons of jewelry. Um, and so at the Second Avenue Deli, if you order matzo ball soup, they bring it in a, in a tin cup and they pour it into your, so it stays hot, right? And they pour it into your bowl. And when she, when, when she would bring the matzo ball soup, she would say, you be the richer, I'll be the poorer. Aww. Wow, right? There's something going on there. She actually ended up getting fired after decades of working there and suing them for age discrimination, which she won, but she already died by the time she won the suit. Terrible story. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so these were places where Jews could really feel like they had finally arrived in American society even though they hadn't, basically, right? Because 1920s was an extremely anti-Semitic decade, probably the most anti-Semitic decade in American history. Because you had the rise of the KKK, you had a Red Scare, which often targeted Jews, you had um, Henry Ford, the most influential 
American anti-Semite before Mel Gibson, <laughs> right? Jews were not yet accepted to universities and professional schools and country clubs, and right? Jews were still very much marginalized in American society, and yet somehow in New York, they could go to these places, they could be among their own, and they could feel like they were important. And that's what really, really mattered. And so that was the non-kosher deli, right? But then there were kosher delis that were proliferating in the outer boroughs where Jews were living, even though the proportion of Jews keeping kosher dropped precipitously during the interwar period. So that fewer and fewer Jews needed to keep kosher, but if they were having their relatives over for dinner, right, or they were eating out with their extended family, and Sunday night was the time for Jews to eat out with their extended family, right? Sunday night in some ways replaced, Sunday night in the delicatessen replaced Friday night in the synagogue for Jews for whom religious observance was less compelling. So even if they weren't necessarily keeping kosher, when they ate out, they, they, they needed to get kosher food. There were 1,550 kosher delis in New York, in the five boroughs of New York, in the 1930s. 1,500. Do you know how many there are now? Like 15. <laughs> I mean, they've dropped by 99%. It's really amazing. This is actually a uh, picture of the convention of the deli owners. And I think Hartley Lactor, do you know Hartley? Yeah. Hartley, Hartley recognized uh, one of his relatives in this picture. <laughs> but right, Rubens, the, the whole menu was, was filled with caricatures of the, of the stars. The Carnegie Deli, a little bit different in that they didn't advertise the, the pictures of the, of the stars, but they did make this implicit case that the Carnegie Deli was a landmark among other landmarks in the city and that you would go from, say, the Empire State Building to the Carnegie Deli, where they had these skyscraper sandwiches. And that idea of height, right, was part of the whole ethos and the experience of being in New York. Now, I want to say that it's important that it was not just Jews who became enamored of a delicatessen. There were lots of non-Jews, too, who became interested in Jewish food. I mean, it tastes good, right? <laughs> and I think it represented, just like we talk about African-American soul food, right, which really comes along as a term in the 1960s, but this was our soul food. And I've been doing some research lately on African-American interest in, in eating in delicatessen. So I'm going to skip to that. Um, Retha Franklin, Lou's brother. <laughs> there actually was there actually was a delicatessen in Chicago, which was uh, named Lyons, uh, Nate Lyons, which was taken over by one of um, the owner's African American employees, and it kind of switched from being a Jewish deli to being an African American owned Jewish deli. <laughs> I'd like to beat out a little number that's real groovy or rooney, titled Dunkin' Bagels or Routy, like Routy. Root salad there. Okay. 
A pickle herring, well, you can look it up on YouTube. But uh, the other thing, though, that's very important is that I think that African Americans were more welcome in delicatessens than they were in other kinds of restaurants during this time. Not, you know, I mean, it, that's a generalization. I did find evidence of one delicatessen in Baltimore, a kosher deli, that said that black patrons are welcome as long as they bring their own plates, which I thought was really horrible. But there were delis that were very much places where blacks and whites could come together. So I'm going to show an example of that now from Charles Kuralt's On the Road series. Anybody remember watching Charles Kuralt? It happens every day. Some innocent out-of-towner finds himself on Grand Avenue at noontime, wants a nice quiet lunch, and decides he'll have it at Jerry's place. Come with me. Come with me, sir. This is it. Right here. Wake up. And that is the worst mistake that out-of-towner could possibly make. Between 11.30 and 1 o'clock, Jerry's is not so much a delicatessen as a crucible in which office girls and hard hats and newspaper men and hippies and cops are crushed and insulted and manhandled and only the strong survive. You have to have some kind of death wish to go through this for a corned beef sandwich. The Lucifer of this inferno is Jerry Myers. His incredible mixed bag of customers aver that to know him is to love him. And he is lovable, sure enough. It's just that indecision drives him crazy. Jerry Myers often throws indecisive customers out on the street. The well-trained ones steal themselves on the sidewalk, take a deep breath, and then hit the door ordering. A battalion of hot-eyed countermen trained by the masters support Jerry and compliment him. But he is the impresario, and it's no good staying in your office and trying an end run to the hot pastrami because he answers the phones, too. Jerry, go ahead, please. Go ahead, man, please. That's all right, man. There's four phones. We can talk fast, please. What else, man? What else, man? Extension number. It's been nice. Jerry's son, Michael, wrote an essay for school once which said, I admire one person very much. That person is my father. I want to be like him. He likes black and white the same. He is nice and kind to all people. Do you really get mad at customers sometimes? No, not mad in the sense of mad, no. Uh, it's... Uh... Mad in the sense that I must see them taken care of immediately. Our rule is if they're here after three minutes, they get their merchandise for nothing. As if I'm in my rule for 25 years. Uh, I've never given anything away yet. I think there's a person actually feels something, that there is a, oh, a love of fellow man in there somewhere. Even when I shout at him, even when I grab him by the hand. I think there is that a person actually knows. Sure, the few individuals that say they're hell with you, I've had them swear at me and run out. 
They don't want to take this, but those are the very few. I don't think we really know these things. My father, wrote Jerry's son Mike, yells at the customer. But his store is the most integrated store in the world. It is a strange store. Papa! Almost lost him. Sir, you want to give your order or you want to stand there? Forget about it. Go to Walgreens. Mike, my boy, you said a mouthful. So African Americans definitely definitely developed a connection to Delhi food. This is during Obama's first presidential campaign. I want to talk a little bit about World War II, and particularly the slogan that was in Katz's and other delis. Uh, it only rhymes if you say it with a real strong outer borough Jewish accent. Send a salami to your boy in the army. Right, very good. We have some New Yorkers here. Uh, and again, I know you're going to think I have a little bit of a dirty mind, but there's something very phallic about this. I mean, why are you sending out hard salami to your son in the army unless you're giving him that dose of, of virility to enable him to defeat the enemy and return safely to the bosom of his family, right? There's definitely something going on there. And not only that, but after World War II, the kosher food companies like Hebrew National, and Zion Kosher, which is interesting how a lot of these companies took names connected to Jewish peoplehood, right? Not to Jewish religion, but particularly after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, right? And that's why you have in, in Chicago, you have Sinai 48, right? You have a lot of these companies that have these Zionist names. And they are looking to reach out to a um, larger clientele <laughs> and sex sells, as they say. And they are, this is on the occasion of the billionth Hebrew National hot dog that was sold. And they took these buxom blonde models and they dressed them up in very little clothing. <laughs> and uh, here, I'll give you an even better example. I mean, that says it all, right? right there. It looks like Lady Gaga, I know. So. So this is important, though, because what's happening after World War II? Jews are moving out of the city. They're moving to the suburbs. We don't have that face-to-face, -face communal, close-knit culture anymore, right? And so these companies have to come up with new marketing ideas. And they especially need to get over people's perceptions of deli food as being unhealthy, as being somehow unclean, unsanitary, and so on. A transcription. For that old-fashioned flavor that all the folks favor, try Hebrew National Meats. They're a treat to be sure, cause the beef is so pure in Hebrew National Meats. You'll find corned beef and roast beef, salami, pastrami, and wonderful frankfurters too. They are surely delicious and purely nutritious, those Hebrew National Hebrew National Hebrew National Meats. So what's interesting is that the technologies that were developed during the wartime for packaging and preserving food are now being adapted to peacetime use. <coughs> and this is ironic because in the case of deli food, right, as we said earlier, the whole point of curing and smoking food, right, is to preserve it. And now the food is being shrink-wrapped and vacuum-packed. <laughs> it's being twice preserved to be able to be sold in supermarkets. 
to a mix of, non, of Jewish and non-Jewish customers. And things are very different now. This is not the same kind of relationship to the food that Jews had when they were able to go into a deli. And it wasn't just the food, but it was the social context of the delicatessen, because the delicatessen was such an important gathering place. I think in many ways just as important, if not more important, than the synagogue. And so for Jews to not have that place where they could come together around the consumption of these very special foods meant that Jews' whole connection to their heritage was undergoing a very profound shift. And this accelerates not just in the New York suburbs, but throughout the country, in Miami Beach, in Boston, where the delis, as in other places, were, uh, were places where, you, where politicians would go to seek the Jewish vote. So this is the G&G &G on Blue Hill Avenue in, in Boston, where anyone who was, wanted to get elected, whether a Jewish or non-Jewish politician, would need to go and court the Jewish vote. Even JFK was seen there eating kishka <laughs> and corned beef. <laughs> and these are, these are local politicians in the, in the front who are, uh, in fact, one of them used the uh, deli as the address on his business card without asking the owner's permission. <laughs> because he didn't really have an office. He would just meet people there. <laughs> and in LA, of course, Cantor's, which opens in 1931 in Boyle Heights, eventually moves to Fairfax. Uh, wonderful musical, forgotten musical, never made it to Broadway, called My Fairfax Lady, <laughs> which is about a Julie Andrews kind of character who is trying to assimilate into the Jewish deli culture of the Fairfax, bless you, Fairfax neighborhood, and has to learn all the Yiddish words and expressions and the food and everything like that. It's really very, very clever. Nay Nows in Beverly Hills, 1945. Orson Welles, bless you, Orson Welles once said, flatly, there could be no picture making without pastrami. <laughs> and he said, I hear there's a plan afoot to pipe the borscht across the continent from Lindy's. <laughs> and the Pico, Pico Robertson Deli, kosher deli. Okay, so I'm going to move on. Uh, so for a number of reasons, Jews begin to move away from this kind of food. They see it as very low class. They see it as very immigrant and plebeian. And this is not the kind of food that you're going to be eating if you are really trying to make something of yourself in America. And Jews are also discovering, as Ari said, discovering other kinds of ethnic food, particularly Chinese food. <laughs> but other kinds of food as well. Any Alan Sherman fans here? Okay, well, so, well, Mickey Katz, first of all. Mickey Katz has a great song called 16 Tons, which is based on the Tennessee or Ernie Ford coal mining thing, right? Which is about, see, this is another reason why delis start to decline. The, the people don't want to go into the business anymore, right? The children of the deli owners now have more opportunities, and they're not going to work the 16-hour back-breaking days, you know. So that's what that song is about. But I'm going to actually skip to Alan Sherman, Hungarian Rhapsody, based on Brahms. He does something very funny with it. Hungarian food, they have a goulash, which is very good. Or if you wish a dish that's Chinese, somewhere down in Columbia, there's lobster Cantonese. Hey! 
enchiladas. That's what people eat in Mexico. Shish kebab is skewered in Armenia, you know. Then there's blubber, the favorite of the frigid Eskimo. Such delicious dishes, no matter where you go. Chicken cacciatore is Italian. Kangaroo souffle must be Australian. Mutton chops are definitely British. Chicken soup undoubtedly is Yiddish. Pardon. Comes from Lithuania. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm. What time do you have? Ten minutes. Okay. So another big reason why Jews are moving away from this type of food is, as we said, it is not healthy. <laughs> and now another episode of Samurai Delicatessen. Would it be uh, 
Would it be too much to ask if you could cut it in half? That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you very much. That's terrific. Uh, one other thing. What you about? You think you could break a 20? <laughs> So what's interesting here, I think, is that, you know, I make a connection in my book between what happened in the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where you had the priests, right, the Kohanim, who were the ones who were responsible for taking care of the meat, right, and doing the sacrifices, and now you have kind of the modern-day analog, the guy in the delicatessen who's slicing up the beef, which is just as important to the way that the community defines itself and operates. So I think there is a connection there. It's also interesting in connection with what we talked about earlier that it's not just the waiter but the counterman or the owner or whatever who would often treat people very contemptuously. And this actually reaches its apex in, 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 in popular culture, not in a delicatessen context but on a Seinfeld episode where you have a guy behind the counter who gets dubbed just right? Right? Okay. So we're Running out of time, I wanted to, as I promised, I wanted to play When Harry Met Sally, which is crucial because, again, it's about non-Jewish, I guess you would say, involvement in the deli. It's actually a takeoff on a very famous scene in Annie Hall, where the main character, Alvy Singer, takes his date, Annie Hall, to the Carnegie Deli, and she orders the wrong sandwich. <laughs> Milton Berle once said that anytime someone goes into a deli and orders a white a pastrami on white bread with mayonnaise, somewhere a Jew dies. <laughs> and that's what she does, and he has this look on his face of utter and complete disgust. And yet, what's interesting is that he took her to a deli in the first place, right? And he didn't tell her what to order. He didn't coach her in any way. He's letting her make a fool of herself in front of him so that he can feel important because the whole rest of the movie, he's made to feel like he's meaningless, you know, and insignificant by her family. So When Harry Met Sally is again about the whole theme of masculinity and she shows him that he's not as masculine as he thinks he is, right? I don't... What do you do with these women? You just get up out of bed and leave? Sure. Well, explain to me how you do it. What do you say? Just have an early meeting, early haircut, or squash game. You don't play squash. They don't know that, they just met me. That's disgusting. I know, I feel terrible. You know, I'm so glad I never got involved with you. I just would have ended up being some woman who had to get up out of bed and leave at 3 o'clock in the morning and go clean your andirons. And you don't even have a fireplace. Not that I would know this. Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. Hey, I don't feel great about this, but I don't hear anyone complaining. Of course not. You're out the door too fast. I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know? Because they... Yes, because they... How do you know that they're really... What are you saying? That they fake orgasm? It's possible. Get out of here. Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? 
You know, what's funny is that I teach a course called Jews and Food, and one time I was teaching it, and I was walking out of the building, there were a couple of students who were on the other side of the wall, and one of them was saying to her, did you hear what that professor was just teaching to his class? Said, That's that scene from When Harry Met Sally. And the other one said, no, it's not. She said, yes, I'm sure it is, she said. She said, I'll take any class that professor is teaching. <laughs> but what's missing? What's missing? This is the, the non-Jew is having this ecstatic experience in the deli, even more pleasure than any of the Jews seem to be having or anyone else seems to be having, right? And yet, what's missing? This is the one I'm going to end on. This is a recreation of the scene. I don't know, I think, uh, I think the women are pretty satisfied. Are you sure that they're genuinely satisfied? That are they're not saying, pretending to be satisfied? Are saying that they're faking? Yes. I'm pretty sure I could tell. I could tell.
what they're having. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was fun. No, that's too much. You thought about joining in? No. All right, so that's a flash mob, you know. That's, and so what was missing from the other? It's a collective experience. It's a, it's a community. Oh, okay, okay, fine, too quiet. But also the whole point that I've been trying to make is that it, the deli was about a communal experience, right? Not an individual one, right? It was about everybody coming together. Thank you very much. Okay, Ari says two questions. Who has a really good question? Yes, sir. Damon Runyon, yes. But his picture was was Lindy's and a whole group of both of non-Jews, right? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, a lot of the gangsters actually are supposed to be Jewish, even though he wasn't Jewish. He gave them a kind of Yiddish, you know, inflection and and uh, milieu. Um, but what's interesting about about him is he has a wonderful story called Butch Minds the Baby, which is about a gangster who's watching one of the other guy's um, children. <laughs> and he says he's sitting in Mindy's restaurant, which was a thinly disguised Lindy's, putting on the gefilte fish. Um, and I always think that's really interesting, that even gefilte fish, right, in a theater district deli could be something that could be a symbol of <coughs> Jewish aspiration to join the mainstream, no pun intended, <laughs> of American society. Other questions? I, I have a question. So yes, sir. Delis have, have, have diminished in numbers dramatically. In fact, uh, I was just in the Lower East Side. I went by Cassis to check it out. Even though I'm vegetarian, <coughs> famous. But um, are they coming back now? Are they going to disappear? What's your read on? Okay. So, so there are new delis that have been opening up over the last several years all over the country, and they often try to marry the whole trend towards sustainability with the Jewish delicatessen concept. So only grass-fed beef, and only organically grown vegetables, and only homemade soda, and things like that. And so particularly on both coasts, um, you know, these kinds of delis are, are opening in, in Brooklyn, and in Berkeley, and San Francisco, and I think there might be one in LA too. Uh, and so, but there's a real question though, I think, about whether or not that's the kind of experience that people are looking for when they go to a delicatessen nowadays. Uh, I think for Jews of, uh, who, are, who are looking for, for that nostalgic fix, I'm not sure whether that works in the same way. But I think the majority of patrons of these newer delis are not Jewish, and so they may not be looking for the same thing. Um, can I take one more question or no? Sure, last one. One more question here. What my father thought of as a deli was where he went for locks every Sunday, and it was a ritual. So, I mean, for me, a delicatessen is about meat. Somebody once said that a delicatessen is based on the sale of 10 meats. I won't name them all for you, but you can probably come up with them yourself. <laughs> so I didn't deal with appetizing stores, which were a whole other, you know, kind of, which are important, um, you know, locks and bagels and things like that. And I didn't deal with dairy restaurants like Ratner's, which sold cheese blintzes and soups and things like that. I really confined my research to the classic Jewish deli, which, as we said, is about pastrami, corned beef, and tongue. Yes, thank you. There's a documentary about Deli Man, yeah. So, yeah, Eric Anjou's uh, uh, documentary, Deli Man, which just came out. How many of you have seen it? So I begged Eric, I begged him to uh, interview me for the documentary. Unfortunately, by the time I found out about it, he had already done all the footage for it. 
but I did help him a little bit with uh, historical pieces that he needed to fill in, and there's a photo of mine. I have a very extensive collection of deli memorabilia, the, the actual neon signs and clocks and menus and all that stuff. I have tons of that, so I did lend them some of that. But I actually just found out I'm speaking on Wednesday night at the New York Public Library, and Frederick Wiseman, you know who Frederick Wiseman is? Yeah. Very, very important documentary filmmaker is making a documentary about the New York Public Library, and he's going to be there on Wednesday night. So I may end up getting a documentary anyway. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Someday, please, God. <laughs> Thank you.